Nothing has ever stopped the voices in me from coming out, and I'm wondering what will happen next. But it's odd, because it never happened to me before that anything stopped me. Voices. 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 Hello, podcast listeners. That was Susan Musgrave, the poet, joining us for this episode, and I am Megan Black. Welcome back to Voices Podcast, a collaboration between Art Poetry Magazine and Poetry and Voice that brings together poets and the students who chose their poems to recite for Poetry and Voice's annual contest. This podcast was recorded remotely, so let us start by acknowledging the different Indigenous lands and participants who were on while we had our conversation. The archipelago of Haida Gwaii is the unceded traditional territory of the Haida people. Vancouver is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Montreal is on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded land of the Ganakahaga Nation. And Ottawa, where Arc Poetry Magazine is located, is built on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Okay, so I don't have a recording of Susan Musgrave introducing herself, but I am so glad she was able to be a part of this episode. And here's a little sample of her voice. So what do we see when we look? How do we know beauty when we see it? And Susan and I are also joined by Poetry and Voice semi-finalist Isadora, who I do have introducing herself. Hi, I am Isadora Mata Pinheiro. I go by she, her, and I go to Collège Beaubois. Hi, now that we are all introduced, let's listen to Isadora's recitation of the poem. Question by Susan Musgrave. What do they think about you, the people who pass you on the street? What would you like them to see? They see the druggie, the whore, the junkie. I'd like them to see me as their daughter, a sister, a lover, their mother. They see garbage, blood, feces. They see us in alleyways, passed out in heaps. Sick, crazy for a fix. I'd like them to see me as a dancer who can't remember the steps. A singer whose voice has left her. A woman whose heart has grown as empty as every naked hotel room she's ever tried to check out of. They see needles, spoons, condoms, think HIV, AIDS. I want them to think how hard I try to live. When they cruise the street, Stop for a red light at the corner where I stand waiting in the rain. They see scabs on my face, festering sores, scars, rotting teeth. When they rev their engines, crank up the heat, I want them to see how the only desire left in me is the desire to make the best of it. Now, it sounds so emotional and yet so measured, and it's wonderful. Thank you, thank you. So you go to a French school, Isadora? I do, yeah. How did you end up reciting an English poem? 
Well, you see, I was、uh, going through the、uh, English poems on the English website, and I found her poem, and I thought it it was very captivating. So I decided to choose for the competition. Cool, that's awesome. I was very, I was surprised and very pleased. I always figure nobody will ask me to dance. That kind of person, you know. So nobody will ever pick my poem. <laughs> so I was quite shocked. I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" Well, you read it so well. Thank you. After hearing you, I don't think I dare read it again. But. You know, I'll have to have you recorded and doing have put it beside me. So, <laughs> so what made you choose the, this particular poem? It, there's so many on this amazing site of, of poems to, to choose, and I, as I say, very surprised. I thought I have no idea who this will appeal to in terms of, of a, a poem to recite. I actually went through like you know the、uh, themes that were in the the sites and started choosing some that I thought would be interesting. And then I found your poem, and you know sometimes when after you read a book or a text, you kind of like you you stay. A Little quiet, and you think because it made you think about something, and、um, it made me thoughtful. And I thought it was really impactful, and I liked how、uh, it's relatively short, but it carries a lot of meaning. I think it's more captivating because it talks about subjects that sometimes people go through, but we don't usually talk about. And I thought it would be a good idea to recite it because I think it could really catch people, some people's eyes, and show that the world sometimes is not always fair, and there. Parts that we miss when、uh, we look around. When I first read it, actually, I also showed it to my mother because I thought it was really impactful and there was something to it that made you want to read more. So I was like very, very、um, captivated by it. And when I showed it to my mom, she approved of it, so I said it was a good choice. Thank you. Yeah, very impactful, but not too long. Seems to be the sweet spot for reciters in the poetry and voice contest. It's not a competition. I'm just glad that you read the poem. That was amazing. I mean, yeah, it was a really good poem. Yeah, Isadora, your mom was pretty impressed by your reading too, right? Yeah, she really loved your poem too. She thought it was really well written and.、Uh... Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, oh, that's great! I like your mom. It's so nice to have a supportive mom. Yeah. She also asked me for the video of that poem, so I think she found it interesting and really inspiring. I guess to see that her daughter is doing that. I actually have a couple of lines that I really like from your poem. Yeah. So one of the lines I really like is、um, when you wrote, "I'd like them to see me as a dancer who can't remember the steps." I'd like them to see me as a dancer. Who can't remember the steps? So I thought it was really nice.、Um, I don't exactly know what is your interpretation of it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess what I'm thinking is that when you go into the world of becoming an addict, a lot of addicts are very talented people. They're musicians and they're artists and writers, and it's a hazard of the literary creative life. I think is that to be sucked in that direction as well,、um, especially with alcohol. So I'm thinking that even though this person wasn't dancing anymore, there was still a dancer inside her. But you've kind of pushed that life away. All the creative Creative life that you had because you're just trying to keep from being sick. It's just, are you still a poet even though you're not writing anymore, or, or are you still a dancer because you're not dancing anymore? I, I think you are. I、mm-hmm. think so too. Yeah. Just, we just talk, our culture defines people by what they what they do, about the actions rather than what they may be capable of. So. We're very product oriented in our culture. It's it's like when you go on your first book tour and they say, "So when's your next book coming out?" <laughs> yeah. For, for me, art, any kind of art, is a process. If you don't love doing it, then you probably should do something else because the end product is just that. So it becomes a product, and then everybody wants more product from you. And it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of pressure. There's pressure on everybody. I was wondering what people do who don't have some creative outlet. Maybe they play golf, or everyone has to have something, right? Susan, you just mentioned your process and how process-oriented you are. I've seen an interview with you where you talk about doing around a hundred drafts、yeah. on each of your books. 
No, oh, not each of my books, each of my poems. Oh, your poems. Drafts of my last novel, there were 15, and that was major rewrite, but not 100. But one poem called Depression and Debrechen, that was 96 drafts. I save them to my computer so I know how many drafts there are. But the average poem is probably 20 to 30. And that's where I'm still fiddling around with one or two words. And um, some even go to print, and then I find out years later that the word... I had a, an image of a rice paper door, a poem called Forcing the Narcissus. And I thought, it's not quite right. And I was walking down Roncesvalles in Toronto once, and I saw paper whites for sale, daffodils. And I thought, that's what I wanted. I want a paper white door, not rice paper door. So the book went to do another edition, and I changed it. I didn't know that my mind was still working on that image. Year, you know, this is five years later. And I thought, ah, I'm still working on things. I, some poems, not so much. But the odd one that happens, I just keep fiddling away. A lot of work. Writing is hard work. I don't know that many people realize that because the end product can look so seamless. It's like, oh, I remember my husband, he spent, I guess, the whole day he was in prison in his cell crumpling up a potato chip bag so he could describe the sound of it. <laughs> I took a pen and crossed out the whole paragraph. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of time to, to, to do kind of editing because I'd have to take his work into the prison and bring it out with me. So then I realized, and he didn't really want to say anything to me because he thought I knew what I was doing. Eventually he kind of got upset and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I I, I, please, it's your book. Just say, tell me that you want to keep that in. I think that potato chip bag incident was cut, but it's, yeah, we were editing under a lot of pressure. So I was trying to get it done fast. And, and normally I would be more, what is the word, tactful. Like, do you really think we need this paper bag? <laughs> the crumpling of the potato chip bag scene in the middle of this uh, prison riot? You know, but I, I didn't have the time. So I just thought red pen X. And uh, so I learned something there too. People people are very vulnerable when it comes to their work. You don't want to be heavy handed, be sensitive. Mm, great. Isadora, I think that you had more questions you wanted to ask. Yeah, I had a question. Um, for the first lines in uh, your poem, when you wrote, what do they think? What about? do they think about you, the people who pass you on the street? What would you like them to see? Uh, what is? What do you think exactly is that person? Is it an interviewer or just a stranger? The person who's saying, "What do they think about me?" Yeah. Oh, she's speaking to what I what I did with these poems. I was given seven hours of videotape that Stan Feingold, a producer in Vancouver, had made interviewing seven women he'd chosen from the downtown east side that he thought were the ones that had stories that needed to be told. And he gave them to me and he said, I need you to write a poetry voiceover in poetry for the film. And I watched these videos over Christmas one year and... Uh, I don't tend to like Christmas very much anyway, but it must say it was quite a depressing time because these lives were just, I mean, awful <laughs> in a word. And I wanted to give a voice to these women, but I didn't want to take liberties. I have you know, close family members who have been in that world, but it wasn't something familiar to me. So I didn't want to get it wrong. And I knew also that these women would be watching it. It was aired on Father's Day that year. Um, I remember the year. Heroines is a 48 minute, that's an hour on TV, art documentary produced for Bravo and the Women's Television Network. It came out in 2001 and launched that season of CBC's Rough Cuts. Heroines was awarded the National Film Board's Kathleen Shannon Award, which is presented to an independent filmmaker whose production provides an opportunity for people outside the dominant culture to speak for themselves. In addition to being used for the movie, Clark's photos were published as a book called Heroines, the photographs of Lincoln Clark's in 2002, which won a City of Vancouver Book Award and got a follow-up in 2021 called Heroines Revisited. Susan's poems were also published in a number
number of places, including in her book Origami Dove from McLennan and Stewart, in case you'd like to read them. And I thought, you know, one word out of place and they'll jump all over it because you can't, it's like you can't, street people have a real you know, street wisdom to them. They know if somebody's faking it or being phony or not real. So I wanted to be real. So I think that the voice, it came out of all these seven tapes of the way that the women would talk about themselves, about their lives. And that was the voice that I was speaking in. So what do they, what do they, how does it go? What do they think about when they see me? What do they think about you, the people who pass you on the street? What would you like them to see? Oh, okay. So there is a narrator then. So there's somebody, it was a, what do you call it, an omniscient narrator? It was a narrator that wasn't really there, but this was speaking to the women, I think. Yeah, I imagined a kind of, not a reporter, but someone who was, someone like me who was sympathetic, but because I couldn't just write it for the, the poems from their point of view, I had to put some of me in there. It's a really interesting question, but how did I deal with that? That's probably what I did. I put myself a little bit removed so that I was ans asking the questions. And I think it's very easy to see women on the street and make a assumptions and we just don't know their stories everyone is every story is different and I think it's very easy same with all the people dying from overdoses like my daughter it's easy just to say well they got what they deserved if they were doing drugs I mean it's not at all Gabor Mate says don't ask why the addiction ask why the pain most of these women on the downtown east side of course are addicted and I learned that it's all about pain management they wake up in the morning and they're starting to get sick from not having well it used to be heroin now it's fentanyl you can't buy heroin on the street apparently and that's why so many people are dying. So the whole day is about getting well. It's not about getting high. It's about just getting well. I learned so much listening and thinking, wow. And my mom would say, well, why don't they go to the art gallery? And I said, well, mom, your life becomes very small. Your life is the place that you, where you sleep at night and maybe you go outside to try and score your drugs or, you know, it's, it, the sex trade is, of course, a huge part of it. You don't think I could go to the library or I could read a book. You're just trying to get well. Canada has a highly toxic drug supply and a persistently worsening overdose crisis. Overdoses are the leading cause of unnatural deaths in BC, where Susan lives, and killed 4.5 times as many people as motor vehicle crashes in 2018. Nick Boyce, director of the Ontario Harm Reduction Network, said in a recent interview, a lot of people talk about the heroin supply being contaminated with fentanyl, but we haven't had heroin supply for a long time. The supply is fentanyl. So it's a whole other way of living that was kind of new to me. So I guess I was sort of like the journalist asking these questions, trying to be compassionate, but also a little bit objective because their stories were so troubled. And, and I had a hard time. I just had to, I had to, I had to pull back a bit from the situation just to get some clarity, I guess. Yeah. When you wrote the poem, this is like about a subject that's not really talked about in society. Like, did you want to write other subjects that we don't really talk about? Um, I guess so, because I think that's what's interesting. Places people won't go where the emotion is is a, a very fertile place for for writing or any kind of art I guess I I don't look at it that way at the time it's just what wakes me up I can get put to sleep by a lot of life but something kind of pinches me or gives me I think oh but I that's how I was when I was a kid I, I I wanted to talk about things that people didn't talk about and that was most things in the 60s I mean my parents I don't know what they I don't think they talked actually <laughs> they didn't say anything ever uh, so yeah it's not it's not like I want to shock anybody it's just, it's what interests me. And other people, you know, I think P.K. Page once said that she thought that my writing was too full of shocking images. And I thought, well, it's not that I do that on purpose. That's just where I go. It's what keeps me alive and awake when I'm writing is to tackle something that I'm not comfortable with. If I'm uncomfortable, then there's energy. If there's mystery or unknowing, there's energy. It's hard to get through life, you know. But poetry helps. Poetry does seem to articulate a lot of, the, you know, confusions and things that I feel anyway. I, I think, oh, okay, if I read a poem that really I can respond to, 
to. It helps me not feel so alone. And, and that poem that you chose was a poem asking people to feel more connection towards those that we might just dismiss. Same with people who are drunk on the street. I remember Sophie, my daughter, were in a restaurant and a First Nations man came by and he was making kind of funny faces in the window. Oops. And uh, she said, oh, what a sad man. Like he, she saw, my daughter, the sadness in people that some people would just sort of turn away from or be, and I was irritated. I thought, why is he you know, doing this while we're having dinner? And, 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 she, and she could see that. And I think a lot of the people who feel a lot of pain, it's very hard for them in the world. And I think who, that's who I was writing about in this series of poems and that poem. Is that they often do become casualties of that. Casualties. Nothing casual about it. They become not victims, but they, um, it's too much. It's too, too much pain for a lot of some people to feel. It's not a. It's a kind of a curse to feel too much, uh, unless you can direct it somewhere, and sometimes you can into poetry and song and art, but uh, not always. Yeah. yeah thank you. Uh, so, um, how did you feel when you were writing the poem? How did I feel? Was it sort of desperation? I don't know how advanced my daughter's addiction was at the time, but of course I had her in mind, and so it was was troubling. I, I was really troubled, especially over Christmas, when it's supposed to be such a joyous season, and it wasn't because I was at home with these tapes in my head and trying to write these series of poems. So it was depressing in a way. On the other hand, it's the odd thing. You can write a, you can be tremendously depressed and write a, a beautiful poem called Joy about joy, but the, the depression is what gives rise to the poem. So I might have been in a really dark place, but I wanted poems to have a life, you know, that was not depressing in its, itself. I don't know whether they are or not. I mean, it's hard for me to see them, I guess, that clearly now how people feel. When you read it, it, it didn't feel depressing. It felt, oh, I'm glad someone is speaking for, for the women who need a voice in a way that reaches people. Isadora, can you talk a little bit about your performance and how you decided the way in which you were going to perform the poem? A part of it was I asked my teacher and she helped me to learn how to recite a poem well. Usually I practice alone in my room so I can understand a little bit more the feelings I want to feel. I think it helps a lot too because then, well, I have my, my own opinions on the poem so I do it on how I think. What I could feel with the poem is there was a lot of pain and it's interesting how a poem can express that. It's like when you watch a movie, sometimes you see um, the point of view of another person that's different from you and it kind of felt that way but more and more adept uh, because I could it's like I could understand those type of people more it was really interesting and I kind of could feel a little bit of the pain that person felt so yeah that, that one changed uh, my perspective on things it expressed how sometimes you well, yeah you look at someone and then you think oh we have nothing in common or we have two completely different lives but then you found out how many people go through the same things but we don't actually see it on the outside Another part, I'd say I went with my instinct and how I felt with it. I recited it and I tried to stop at the moments where I felt would make a bigger impact and sometimes where I felt I should stop because I needed air or just more time to take it in. And um, yes, I recited how I thought it would be like a story. Like if you're telling a story to someone, you make some pauses and I did something like that. Well, you really brought it to life. I think when someone is reading poetry well, they give it a new life. That's what I felt. I was actually surprised I think Lorna Crozier must have chosen that poem and I thought why would she choose that one of all my poems but I guess she knew what she was doing and uh, you read it I thought that's why she chose it I had not seen that I think sometimes I shy away from reading the poems that affect me the most because I'm scared of how people might react I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm contributing to anyone who has pain in them already which most people do but often when I read the poems about my daughter's addiction or these poems people come up after the reading and, and they tell me about their own family members and just these heart-wrenching stories I get so 
many of them. And so I know that it's all, you know, it's out there. So sometimes I might try to avoid those poems just because I'm a coward. I don't want to upset people. But I know it's important to to also speak for those people. So I feel torn sometimes. So it was, when you read, I felt it was you were giving life into a situation that it didn't seem depressing at all. It just felt you've made this come alive through, through your reading of it. And that was lovely because I now I might be brave enough to read my own poem. <laughs> well, I remember being in a library and, uh, and the librarian had been very chipper all through dinner. You know, it was like one of those people that would just exhaust me with her exuberance. And, and uh, after I read the poem, she came up and her daughter was, you know, addicted to crack and she was pregnant and she's living with some man who was abusing. I mean, just this whole story poured out. And I thought, oh, oh dear, the poems that I read kind of gave her permission, but she became this other person. So it's surprising what you're going through. It usually doesn't have any bearing on the way you look on the outside. And I feel so sad that people have to cover up the pain that they're feeling and, and don't realize that they're not alone. Anybody you talk to has some family member or a friend or someone that's going through something that's pretty difficult. Poetry can kind of make us feel um, more connected to one another and less cut off. I think that's a really useful thing. And I'm hoping through your reading of this poem, and that's what you may have done. Maybe the next time somebody drives downtown in the downtown east side and sees a woman on the corner, they'll think differently. Yeah, it is pretty upsetting, but you did a really good job trying to like show how um, it is a delicate subject, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it because many people go through it. Um, but a lot just make assumptions and think it's their fault when it isn't exactly that way. No, it's many ways. I mean, my daughter, people on the street would say to her, what are you doing here? You have parents who love you. You have a happy, ha you know, happy place. And she said, I don't know what I'm, you know, what am I doing? You're, they're right. So she was very confusing for her too. She's not in these poems, but I know that that was a lot of the feedback she got. It's so easy to, to make assumptions, as I say, about just looking at, and it's upsetting to see women on the street corners. And, you, and I know, I know, I can tell who are the addicts. And, uh, and you sort of know there's not a lot of positive outcomes in a lot of the stories. There are some, but not a a lot so but some poetry is, is hard um and i must say since my daughter died that seven months ago i haven't written anything nothing had ever in my life stopped me from writing so that's pretty interesting to me i'd always even after my husband died three months later i started a memoir about grief wrote quite a lot of it and i know that i'm you know reading a lot and reading is very important to feed that nothing has ever stopped the voices in me from coming out and i'm wondering what'll happen next so i'm not writing it i'm just assuming that it will happen or it won't happen but, uh, it's odd because it never happened before that I stopped that I, anything stopped me yeah. I wouldn't wish this on anybody it's funny people will say I can't imagine that's the thing you get told the most and then you realize your life has become unimaginable it's like oops <laughs> and then it's even unimaginable to yourself because you can't imagine it anymore and I think that's the thing that scares us most about when we're parents I don't know if you're a parent Megan obviously you're not yet Isadora but it's the scariest thing to think of losing a child and I see why now uh yeah, there are some really good books. There's a poet in the States whose son died at 30. I'm reading her books now. One of their book of poems is The Small Door of Your Death, and that's the, where the needle went in. I haven't opened the book yet because I can't get past, past the image, but there you go. Being the needle and the damage done. It takes a certain kind of mind to read poetry at all. I'm surprised that more people don't because it helps me when I'm in any kind of mood just to read something that either makes me laugh or makes me cry. I just speaks to something. But I remember it was A.E. Houseman saying, not everybody can hear the sound that a bat makes, but they don't think less of themselves because they can't. But a lot of people think that they don't get poetry and they somehow feel there's something that there's a fault. And I, I don't think there is at all. I think it's just it's partly training. I've read poetry since I was in grade four, I guess, and, and you just get to understand a certain uh, no, you don't read it with your mind completely clear it's almost like you have to be consciously disengaged to read poetry so you allow things to come and go without stopping too much to think what does this mean 
or what you know just to let it let it kind of be and let it flow and then it it works but uh, i understand too why people don't have that need in them too but that uh, how did you uh, so discover poetry when you were in grade four uh, my parents had the collected works of tennyson on the shelves that was and i remember i just loved the language yeah and then in school i got a detention for kicking an apple core in line so i was sent to the library as a punishment and to sit on the thinking chair so my mind went mm, thinking is really a bad thing <laughs> i'm gonna make the most of this and so I started looking at the books of poetry and all these books by Irving Layton, who had four letter words in them, which I'm sure no librarian had read them because they wouldn't have been in the library. And I thought, wow, I didn't know poetry could do this. Quite shocking to me. It was pretty innocent. And um, it fed my rebellious spirit. Uh, yeah. School uh, was a different time in the, in the 60s and 70s, I think. Then I, think. I hope it's changed a bit. I've worked with a lot, in a lot of schools with the Writers and Electronic Residence Program, and there were some really wonderful young writers. So do you write yourself? I wrote a couple of poems, mostly in French, but I have English. English ones too. I'd love to hear something. I could, yeah, I could. Isidore did read some of her poetry to Susan here in French and English, but that isn't going to be a part of this podcast. I'm sure we will be hearing more about Isidore's poetry when she's ready to publish it. Well, I wish you best of luck and everything, and I hope to choose a better poem next time so you're a finalist. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for being here and being a part of this. Thank you both so much. And also to our podcast listeners, I'm so glad that you could join us today to listen to this conversation between Isidora and Susan, this has been another episode of Voices Podcast. Goodbye. Voices. 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 Voices.